Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Our guest today is the firm's chief market strategist, Bill O'Grady. During these podcasts, we address in what we plan to be a concise and efficient way current geopolitical issues affecting investment strategies in a question and answer format. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. These discussions often focus and expand on themes presented in the firm's weekly geopolitical report, as well as the daily comment and other research articles written by the firm's experts. You can access these reports on the front page of confluenceinvestment.com, and it's an easy step to subscribe by email to any of these reports. In this podcast, we conclude our discussion of the potential decline of the United States as a global hegemon or dominant player on the world scene and the implications for our portfolios. We focus today on the possible financial reverberations of this trend, including the outlook for the U.S. dollar. Now, Bill, one key role of the global hegemon is to provide financial liquidity worldwide, and certainly the dollar is the overwhelmingly dominant world currency today. The U.S. at the same time is experiencing consistent trade deficits. Are trade deficits consistent with the role of financial hegemon? In fact, it is a, a critical part of, of the hegemonic system. Uh, it, it is not a bug. Uh, it is not a flaw. It is part of the structure. Uh, the reserve currency, to define it, is the currency most used in global trade and international financial activity. The Bank of International Settlements, which is a Swiss institution and is often called the Central Bank for Central Bankers, estimates that about 85% of all payments in global credit activity uh, use dollars uh, in, in some form or another uh, in the transaction. If there's any area of misunderstanding by investors, the reserve currency role is probably one of the least understood elements. The widespread use of the dollar in global transactions for goods and for financial services requires foreigners to acquire those dollars. There are essentially two avenues to get dollars. The first is by borrowing. This road is risky because lenders at some point may stop lending. In addition, since the loans are in dollars, they either require some sort of rollover or some source of dollars to service the debt. Which leads us to the second avenue, running a trade surplus with the United States. To get dollars, foreign governments skew policy to suppress domestic consumption and build domestic saving. This saving is used for investment to create productive capacity. As this capacity is built, it usually exceeds the consumption of the foreign economy, and so the excess capacity is used for exports, which allows for the accumulation of the reserve currency. This means, at heart, that foreigners need to run a trade surplus with the United States to acquire dollars. The U.S. trade deficit isn't necessarily due to our spendthrift nature. The trade deficit is built from overseas policy decisions. Well, in the past, how, how did hegemon countries deal with this deficit challenge? It was mostly done through colonization. 
The colonies, unlike countries that were not under colonial power, were forced to run a trade deficit with the host nation, the hegemon, and this offset some of the detrimental effects of the underlying trade deficit with the rest of the world. Well, in the case of the United States, we were never big on colonies. How have we dealt with this? Well, you're right. The U.S. did not see colonialization as part of, of uh, our our national identity. In fact, we had a revolution to not be a colony. Uh, and initially, we didn't really need colonies. Uh, after World War II, the United States uh, was about 35% of global GDP. The rest of the world had been devastated by war, and the U.S. industrial base was essentially untouched. In addition, the U.S. had a massive gold reserve. In the 1950s, the U.S. held nearly 70% of the world's monetary gold. However, we found out rather quickly that if the rest of the world was going to recover, the U.S. was going to need to bolster their economies through trade. The U.S. supported Europe with the Marshall Plan and opened up uh, trade to Japan as well. This meant that global growth became dependent upon U.S. domestic demand. For a number of years, the relative size of the U.S. economy was able to absorb trade without incident. But by the late 60s, the gold reserve had fallen to under 30% of the global total, as foreign nations who could swap gold for dollars under the bread and wood system did so. Eventually, the U.S. ran into a problem called the Triffin Dilemma. The reserve currency nation has to run a trade deficit to supply its currency to the world, but the larger that deficit becomes, the less faith foreigners have in holding the reserve currency. The resolution of the dilemma in history is an external standard like gold. The reserve currency nation occasionally has to engage in austerity to rebuild its gold supplies, which is bad for the global economy. You mentioned the Bretton Woods system. We're no longer, uh, we no longer operate under this system. What, what happened? How did it break up? What replaced it? Well, by the late uh, 60s, early 70s, the drain on gold was becoming critical. In fact, to tell you how, things, how bad things got, the U.S. had a rather cockamamie uh, program called Operation Goldfinger, which was a series of research projects the government funded uh, to acquire gold from unconventional sources. One of the projects was to pull gold out of seawater. President Nixon was facing re-election in 1972, and there was a shortage of gold. The textbook solution would be to raise taxes and interest rates to slow the economy down and narrow the trade deficit. However, he was worried that this slowdown would adversely affect his re-election chances. And so on Sunday, August 15, 1971, the U.S. unilaterally announced it would no longer swap gold for dollars. Although it was uncertain at the time, what evolved was we went from a dollar gold standard under Bretton Woods to a dollar treasury standard under the current system. In effect, we can expand our trade deficit to the extent the world wants to hold treasuries. What we have seen in practice is we have not discovered a limit to the U.S. trade deficit. The benefits of the current system is that the U.S. can import with nearly no limits and can swap those real goods for ledger balances created by keystrokes. This is an enormous benefit to consumers, giving the U.S. a wealth of goods at attractive prices. The costs are to importing competing industries. Jobs are lost. In addition, it distorts our financial system as inflows from trade can go into other financial instruments other than treasuries. The global appetite for risk-free debt was part of the 2008 real estate bubble. What would backing away from this do? 
uh, higher prices, much slower global growth, but more jobs in the United States. You've introduced a lot of pretty complicated themes, and, and I guess any one of these themes we could explore in depth. But let's back up a little bit. Could you say that, in effect, today, right now, America is the world's big consumer, and, and we're financing this consumption with debt? Yes, but it's not, it's kind of different than the way it's usually thought of. It's really almost like vendor financing. Foreign nations are lending to us so they can have higher levels of employment, and they are willing to lend us that for that reason. Why can't this continue indefinitely? Well, it's become politically untenable in the United States. Uh, the job losses to imports uh, through the trade deficit uh, have decimated parts of the country, and uh, the distortions are just simply not politically acceptable. Let's look at this for a few more moments and dig down into the question, why has providing the reserve currency become politically unsustainable? Is it because globalization is the enemy of the American worker? Foreign nations engage in policies designed to run a trade surplus with the United States. That's how they acquire dollars. This leads to higher unemployment in industries that compete with those imports. It is unfair trade at its root, but it isn't a bug in the system, as we noted before. It's in the design. Can we say that this is really what today's trade war is all about, an attempt to decrease the value of the dollar? It is, but what we have found is that tariffs are not the most effective tool because under floating exchange rates, if a country is subject to tariffs in the United States, they will simply allow their currency to depreciate and offset the cost of the tariffs. The real goal should be to encourage foreign economies to restructure, to become less dependent on our consumption and more dependent upon their own. The best way to do this, paradoxically, may be by restricting investment flows. How, how would you do that, restrict investment flows? Kind of the way to think about it is that instead of putting a tariff on goods coming in, what you would do is restrict investment going out. If you, one way to think about it, and it's kind of an odd way to, to think about it, but if you reflect on it a bit, it makes sense. The most important good the United States offers the world is the U.S. Treasury. It is the one debt instrument that is universally accepted and considered safe. And countries are willing to go to extraordinary lengths to acquire those treasuries. In other words, if it were a good, we would be running an enormous trade surplus with the world. But because it's a financial instrument, we get goods so people can get that paper. And it, it's a, a very unusual situation uh, one that is is generally not well discussed even in international economics textbooks. Can uh, a withdrawal from global uh, financial hegemon status, can a withdrawal from this status be accomplished without some pretty radical events occurring? Uh, probably not. Uh, as we noted in, in our first episode, being between hegemons is a period of turmoil. If there is no reserve currency to conduct trade, foreign trade becomes bilateral, similar to barter. During the Cold War, the West would sometimes trade with the Eastern Bloc in what was called counter-trade. This was simply swapping goods for goods. 
you would see trade perhaps regionalize. Uh, one outcome could be you could have a yen block or a yuan block or a euro block. Uh, but, but in general, global trade without a currency to conduct it in goes away. A good place to pause. This has been the Confluence of Ideas podcast featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. For more on the subject of the dollar, we point you to confluenceinvestment.com. You can click on Weekly Geopolitical Report on the front page, upper right. You'll have access to several reports exploring the weaponization of the dollar and the deficit issue. You'll also find two reports titled The Dollar Problem, Parts 1 and 2. Our discussion today is based on sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. The information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM.